You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. I feel like we're we're splitting hairs if we're saying what's acceptable and what's not acceptable when we have to look at what people really need and want. And if we can start having conversations based on that, then we can start to relate to each other and understand and, and, and find this middle ground because we get more and more polarized if we just surround ourselves with people that agree with us. And like, yeah, that's of course that's more fun, but it's easier, you know, and, and that isn't where the change is going to come from. That was Ash Beckham, a dynamic presenter who speaks about empathy, respect, and the power of having real conversations. Her TEDx talks, Coming Out of Your Closet and Owning Your Duality, have gone viral with more than 10 million YouTube views. She joins me today to jam about how we can master real and sometimes hard conversations in an age of combativeness. Hint, it's not about making others adopt your perspective. I'm Charlotte Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't really need an answer in the first place. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email clients you already use. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com giant today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash giant. I've used and loved SaneBox for years, and I think you will too. Ash, thanks so much for joining me on today's episode. Um, I've been really digging your work and your TED Talks, and I always love talking to someone about these types of issues, um, especially when they come with it with the fire that you have. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely, Charlie. So excited to be here. It's a pleasure. All righty. So we're going to pull everybody in, um, but I'm also going to plug your TED Talk. So in that fantastic TED, TEDx talk coming out of your own closet, which you know everyone listening to this should watch right after this podcast, um, you mentioned that you periodically go through phases of militant lesbian intensity. Um, obviously, you're much, much more than that identity, um, but I think that gives us a good starting point. Um, Somehow through that, you found a place to find some love and connection and common ground. So when did, I'm, I'm super curious because you mentioned that it's episodic, right? Um, right? At the time, and it may still be episodic. Um, so when do you get out of that place of being able to have those conversations? And when do you go back into a more militant phase? Sure, yeah. I mean, I feel like for so many of us, when we, when we come to terms with our identity, uh, it's kind of this introspective version at first, is this internal comfort, and then we um, embrace how we want that to exist in the world. And and I came from a, 
a place of, um, you know, coming to terms with my sexuality and, and figuring out what that was and, and, and where my place was in society for that. And what, and, and for me, I think more even than a challenge of, um, my sexual identity was my, uh, gender fluidity and nonconformity, you know, so the, the, so how I felt most comfortable, um, and that was a huge, that self-expression was a bigger challenge for me with the external world than my identity. I mean, I think they were almost one in the same, um, that people would see, see me and know I was lesbian because of the way that my expression existed, or I guess maybe assume that that was the case. So they kind of came one in the same, but at least for me, um, it was a process of figuring out, um, my comfort level with that and kind of exploring that and then kind of settling into the like, you know, this is how I feel most comfortable. And then with that came kind of a, a need to defend the years of struggle that I had to, to do that. So whether I was, you know, mistaken for, for uh, a guy or, you know, the double take from like the button down and khakis or whatever that looks like, uh, I don't know, there, there seems to be this, when you get to the journey of being comfortable with yourself and then that isn't okay with people or surprising to people, that reaction, I, I had this need to defend that. You know, I think I'd been trying to assimilate for a really long time. And, and so then there, there kind of was some chest puffing that came with, uh, with finally coming to terms with that. And, and so then that kind of created this, this militant phase for me of constantly being on guard. And once you kind of, find that voice, you are very reluctant to release it again because it's taken so long for you to get there. So that became, became my new normal. That became my constant was always kind of being on guard to defend myself or defend, you know, anybody I was with or folks that couldn't defend themselves or whatever, you know, it was, it was real, it became very combative because I had the courage that came from the confidence that I had once I figured out who I was. Yeah, and that's a tricky balance because um, when you're from marginalized identities or marginalized groups, um, it is a, a part that's with you the whole time of, am I safe in this space? Like, will I be valued as a person here? Will I be thingified Absolutely. or ostracized mm -hmm. by being in this space? Right. So you carry that with you, whether or not it's safe. But there's this balance sometimes where you don't realize that you may be looking for the instances where people are not accepting you. Right. And overlooking the instances where they're either, frankly, don't give a damn, right, or right. are ready to accept you, but you're only seeing because we have a negative bias, negativity bias as humans, we 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 will attract to that one person, like you mentioned, you were um, you're part of waitstaff there, right? So you might be attracted, mm -hmm. you might see that one person that you're getting the vibe from, or their words, or their looks, are telling you that you're not welcome, you're not safe. You don't deserve to be there and miss the entire rest of the restaurant, right? Right. And, and by that same token, those, those same folks um, are bearing, from my perspective, are bearing the baggage of everybody that looked like them before that has walked in that door. So every experience I have had is based on the fact of, A, my familiarity with them, and B, previous experiences with people that I stereotype to be the same without giving them the opportunity to express their uniqueness. And you get, you know, we have this negative bias that comes from experience, so that exists, but um, it, it becomes counterproductive and almost hypocritical in the way that we say we want to be inclusive and we want people to be open-minded, but we're not willing to extend that same courtesy to other folks. I mean, it's, 
we, we don't want to see how closely those things are linked, but they really are when, you, when you're willing to look at it and look at your own negative biases. Exactly. Well, and it's kind of like that, um, you know, I've got a military background, so there's that saying that, you know, generals are always fighting the last war. And in some yeah. ways, right, when, when it, it's super easy to always be fighting the last battle and last war that you had with someone else. So you're, you right. know, you're, you're, you're throwing punches at someone for something they may have, they may not have done and they're getting the full right. front. They're getting the full right. brunt of what somebody else did. And they're like, whoa, whoa, hey, what's, what's this about? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that's, there's, there's that, I don't know. It's, it's this weird place where there's, and I, I don't want to use so much violent sort of, uh, metaphors when we come to these types of conversations, but there's a, a, a tendency to want to, especially, I wouldn't, hmm, that might be a wrong way. I'm going to say it. I think right now would say me too, with some of the language that's happening, we're ready to start saying like, time's up on these things, right? You can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right, sure. And that's fantastic. I'm glad time's up and I'm glad that there's no longer behavior tolerated. And at the same time, I think that can make us overreactive, right? Over ready to say, you know what, I'm, I might need to say this thing, but I don't have to make it super Barbie, right? I don't have to like, I don't have to like really push that hard. And that's a, that's a tricky balance, you know? Absolutely. And I think a huge part of that is, is having the, um, time and the space mentally to envision the end game that you want from that interaction, right? So is this, you know, a potentially violent situation on the street where all of those, you know, cortisol and adrenaline and fight, flight, freeze are appropriate, or is this just an uncomfortable conversation at work? Your brain doesn't know, you know, if, in, in those levels of um, stress that are put on you, that doesn't, you don't know if that's a coworker or a saber-toothed tiger, it still flows through your, and so we, we make these snap judgments about people, but if we can take a second to envision, this is a family member that I'm going to have a relationship with for the rest of my life, or the person I'm going to sit in the cube next to for the next 10 years, or whatever that, that looks like, we have to think, because when we, when we respond in, in that really aggressive way, it provokes a similar response, because they feel just as attacked as, as we do, or, you know, uh, patronized or, or whatever that is that evokes the emotion. So it doesn't really get us anywhere. And that's not to say that there aren't times to have that sort of reaction, but we have to be able to take the time to think of like, do I want this to be a conversation or do I want this to be a monologue? And, and if we want to create change, we have to be willing to be that resource to not write people off because they say something a certain way or, or you know, kind of be more in control of what our responses are. And that's counterintuitive in a, in a very primal way when we perceive being attacked or perceive being judged. And so how do we allow ourselves to get into the space of actually wanting to be the activists that we claim to be in these very grassroots, one-on-one, uncomfortable and awkward, but not threatening interactions? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, so there's, there's multiple, like we're all in some state of, um, that's not true. I, I, I want to avoid all, right? We're all, because that's not sure. true. A lot of us are in a place to where we're on the one hand, um, in these, can be in these conversations where people are doing things that are either hurtful or that they're just don't know the, the long term. And so we're, yeah. we're sort of in those, but at the same time, and, and you mentioned this with, um, with some fluidity, and we can talk about intersectionality, but we also forget that 
in some context, we are the person that's either marginalizing and or oppressing or has some type of privilege, right? Absolutely. That, you know, um, that we are too quickly to defend, like too quick to defend when we hurt someone. Cause like, oh, I can't hurt Ash, you know, as, as a, you know, lesbian woman, cause I'm a person of color. Right. And so, right. exactly. you know, um, and, but it's not true. Like a hurt is a hurt. Right. Um, right. Absolutely. And like, I am marginalized. Therefore I am immune from oppressing other people just doesn't work. I mean, it, it, we're seeing things in this, in such a linear light or even that, I acknowledge that that person is oppressed, but I am more oppressed. Therefore, I, I can't do that. You know, that I, I am incapable of, of, of putting that hurt on somebody or, or being the actor in that way. Um, it almost, you know, puts us in a, in a victim role to not be able to um, actualize our power in those situations. And I feel like privilege is just such a, loaded word it's so hard to talk about with people but if we can reframe that into not like the thing you know sometimes it's like the things i am given but rather it's like the things that i don't have to think about you know like i have to think about walking into a public bathroom and seeing and and, and knowing that there's an a, a likely opportunity that there's going to be some sort of conflict or discomfort because of my gender expression that's just to how things are going to go in in an unrelated way i don't have to tell my newborn son when he grows up to drive what he needs to do with his hands when he pulls the car over because he's white to think that I don't experience privilege because of my oppression allows the people that are, you know, at the bottom of the privilege pyramid to be completely forgotten. And that I then can't use the power that I have for the greater good, like that I don't have to exist on the top of the pyramid to have a profound impact on moving forward. It actually allows that, allied building and intersectionality and strength through numbers because so often marginalized groups, when you explain what your oppression is, A, they can relate and B, that's like low hanging fruit. They're like, I know what that's like in some way. I know what that's like. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing in some ways, almost everybody knows what something is like. Right. And yeah. that's, it's a double-edged sword sometimes, right? Because you'll hear folks being like, well, I understand what it's like to be a minority because this one time I went to Ecuador and there were no other people like me around and it was really awkward. And so I know what it's like to, you know, and that could be right. in these conversations that could be really challenging because it's like, well, you were mm -hmm. on a trip, right? You got to right. go back home, right? So you got right, to, right, right. you don't know what it's like to have your whole life governed by those types of things. And so it's and you were still in a position of power. Exactly. You're still in a position of power. And so that's where it gets tricky, right? Because um, it doesn't take that much emotional um, imagination to understand what it's like to be someone else. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, we all have our own unique lived experiences and we're never right. going to be able to imagine 100% what that's like. Right. Yeah, until you can actually experience that, you'll never know. Like you can imagine, and I think that's like the the crux of that is building building relationship with people that are not like us to build the trust where we can share those stories. Because you can envision what it would be like to have my experience, but unless I trust you enough to be able to sit down and tell you exactly what it's like, then you don't like you don't get the truth. You don't get the genuine and authentic feels. But that has to come from a place where we trust each other. And at the same time, I want to hear your story, too. And, and that we, we believe that, that we're not going to sit there at the end of the day and rank who has it 
harder or who has it more challenging, but we, we relate to those ideas and then I can go back out and, and, and be a representative and an ally for a group that I don't, that I'm not a part of, but that I can still, you know, you don't have to be one of to stand with, but I have to be willing to educate myself, not in the way that I think that person needs to have an ally, but in the way they tell me I could best serve as an ally. You know, like I have friends, friends of mine that are undocumented, you know, if I lesbian friends and if I see, you know, some sort of oppression happening there, it's easy for me to jump up. I feel like I have street credibility. I can absolutely do that. And, and that, you know, that is one, one way to be able to stand up for that. When I have friends that are undocumented and, and we have a similar situation, they don't want it to escalate into a shouting match because the risk of what could happen is so much greater that it's not worth making that shift. And if I think that, you know, my perceived need for an ally or the ally that would best serve my group or me personally necessarily is the best ally for everybody is this, you know, myopic vision of, of what it means to, you know, that's standing up for someone, which is important, but standing with them is so much more important. Standing with them. And I think that's where we go back to, and I'm, I'm with you. Well, I'm going to pause here because um, a lot of our listeners, you know, we've used words like identity fluidity. We use words like intersectionality. We've used words like allyship and privilege and things like that. So um, we, we are coming to the conversation with some shared, some shared conventions, even if we might disagree on exact definitions, but just on those four sort of things, can you get, let listeners know what you mean by them so that, so that we can pull them in? Yeah, sure. So which one do you want me to do first? Identity fluidity. Identity fluidity to me is how do I personally self-define? What are the, you know, and, and I, we're all multidimensional, right? So I have, I have my sexual identity. I have my gender identity. I have my racial identity. I have all these things. It's almost like my personal mosaic, right? Of the things that, that um, define who I am. And those are to me self-proclaimed definitions of who I am. And again, not just, um, you know, physical, but emotional, all these things that I, I claim that I am. If I'm going to explain who I am in a piece of paper, these are the things that I'm going to list. And I am, um, I encompass all of those things, which I think, transitioned into intersectionality. So I am a mass of all of these things together. I, I cannot separate my race from my gender identity in my expression and my experience in the world. I cannot, I, some of those things are certainly more apparent in certain situations. Sometimes they matter. Sometimes they don't. They're always part of me, but the intersectionality is to say that I don't exist by my one identity solely. And my experience as a lesbian cannot I, it, it's impossible for me to say that that is experience of all lesbians because my race creates a certain sense of privilege within that community that I have to acknowledge and that I can't, you know, and my able-bodiedness and my cisgenderedness and all of these things that I, that I identify as some of, you know, the things that I don't think of that I don't list in the first two things that come up are my privilege. But to think that I am solely representative by a singular identity without taking into account these other identities, even if they're not the most prominent at that one moment, they exist to me is, is the definition of intersectionality. Fantastic. Um, and I think you sort of wrapped in some, some privilege in there as well, right? And that's just right. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, and the other thing that I would add to this is identity is tricky because it's both how you view yourself and how society sure. views you. 
Sure. Right. Absolutely. And so that's where there's there's also another way to think about identity fluid data, especially when it comes to around sexual orientation, because um, there are some people who um, might identify as lesbian at one point. Right. But then mm-hmm. identify as bi in another point. I had a great conversation with with Fiona Dawson about this um, in oh, a yeah. previous episode. Right. Um, and then it can go back and forth because there are some that are that are malleable. Right. right. Um, or, or very, very contextual. Right. And the other thing on, on this, when we start talking about intersectionality, and, and this is coming from me having lived in several places in the United States, right, which is really yeah. and, and doing some travel abroad, like being a person of color in the South is a wildly different experience than being a person of color in the Pacific Northwest or in California sure. or in the Midwest, right? And so mm-hmm. even when you start looking at these, the ways external people view and treat you, it's very contextual, right? Mm-hmm. And so that particular, um, that particular dimension of who you are may or may not be dominant or may not be operative in a way in some context and others, right? And um, I think, you know, as we talk to people about intersectionality and things like that, it's super confusing for them because we like to have like, you are this or you're that. And you're always right. this or you're always that. Right. But that's Absolutely. not how we show up. So I would say that the the difference in the intersectionality and it is based on context of where those things show up is um, very easily relatable because we all operate differently in context. Even if, you know, if we don't see ourselves as having and being part of any marginalized group. We know we show up differently around different friends, around family, around our kids, you know, whatever that might be. And that that contextual nature of who we are, we, we not consciously, but we downplay as parts of our identity, right? The conversation we have with our buddies in the locker room is different than the conversation we have, you know, when we go in to take your daughter to work day to our kindergarten class, right? We, 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 fit the situation that we're in. Sometimes that's forced, sometimes that's chosen, but we've all related to people differently. And so when we talk about the the context of how we show up, I think that's something that everybody can, can relate to. Absolutely. Cause it's, you know, I, I, when I talk to people, it's sometimes about this, it's like when we have pet language or pet terms that we talk or pet ways in which we talk about, um, I'm going to try that one again. When we're talking to our partners, we often use language in private that we don't use in public, right? Um, So the pumpkins and the sweeties and everything like that. And we're not conscious sometimes about that, right? It's like you get into the car to go meet your friends for a date or for a dinner date. Um, As soon as you get out of that car, you're in public language or you're in friend language. You're no longer Mm -hmm. in private couple language anymore. And then you get back in the car and then you're back in private language again. But there's nowhere right. where there's this agreement or there's nowhere where there's this conscious thing where we say, okay, I have gotten into this car now and now right. I am going to talk like this, right? And now this is right. the familiarity exactly. and trust that we have. And that, exactly. you know, it can be useful because that's that's what intersectionality can be like. You go into a different space, place, and, and relationship and what emerges, the behavior that emerges is different. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, – now, we're talking about this because, you know, we live right now, like we said earlier, um, there's a lot of primed combativeness. I'm going to say primed mm-hmm. combativeness in the sense where there's a lot going on right now in the world. Um, sure. Um, and how do we take this mess of intersectionality and the change we want to see in the world, the way we want people to be treated, the way we want to be treated, um, and find the compassion in all this combativeness. 
Well, I think part of that, you know, is I, I so appreciate the role that social media has played in the last, you know, decade. I think there's been ability to find like-minded people, to find community, you know, when you have these feelings of being so alone, that you're not looking in your geographic sphere to find people that are like you, that there's this connectedness that happens outside of where you exist. So I appreciate that contextually. But to think about change isn't necessarily surrounding ourselves with people that are just like us. It's surrounding ourselves with people that aren't and creating these trusted relationships, right? So there's this, this thought that if we're, you know, it's, we're starting with this idea of combativeness, and I don't think that it's too hard to use the word hate. And the, the concept is you can't hate up close, right? Once I get to know somebody, no matter how differently they are, and we relate on the things that we have in common, not the ways that we're different, then we can have this connectedness. And, and, and not that it's surface, but that we don't necessarily in the beginning have to delve into the parts where we're on polar opposite ends of the spectrum, right? If I can relate to somebody about their favorite football team or the last book that they read, it doesn't really matter if our political views are super, super different. So I think that the the ability for us to connect in, in this real way, in an actual face-to-face way, again, and we, we surround ourselves in spheres of, you know, the news that we listen to, the people that we talk to, like we're around a bunch of people that say yes, and we're trying to, you know, outdo each other in, in, in the wittiness of the most abhorrent thing the like other side has done when really the connectedness that we need to make are the people at the playground or our neighbors or, or whatever that looks like. And, and to have, you know, I, I don't believe that, you know, not, not to get political, but I don't believe that the last election was decided by, you know, 60 plus million, you know, elite entitled liberals, nor do I think it was decided by 60 million plus, um, you know, racist bigots. Like that's, that's not how simple we are. Like, People just voted for the people they voted for, not necessarily because of what they said, but despite what they said. So there's a stronger reason that drove them. And if we can get to know those, you know, some people didn't have the privilege of worrying about somebody's, let me redo that. People didn't have the privilege of their most important priority being the thing that Trump said, right? They needed their industrial complex in their area had been disseminated. And if they were promised jobs and getting food on the table for their kids, that was, and you, and he, and you believe that that's what he was going to do. That was more important than the things that he said. So it wasn't because of what he said, it's in spite of it. And if we can start to relate on these struggles that people have and, and, and that they're not, not everybody has the ability or the luxury of making the decisions from these like, you know, academic, ethereal, you know, moral points, you know, some of those, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're splitting hairs if we're saying what's acceptable and what's not acceptable when we have to look at what people really need and want. And if we can start having conversations based on that, then we can start to relate to each other and understand and, and, and find this middle ground because we get more and more polarized if we just surround ourselves with people that agree with us. And like, yeah, that's, of course, that's more fun, but it's easier you know, and, and that isn't where the change is going to come from. Precisely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because, I mean, we said earlier, like a hurt's a hurt, right? And sure. hard is hard in, in different ways. And we all have different hurts. We all have different hearts, right? Um, and, right. you know, if you're in a place that's economically depressed and you're really struggling to ha- put food on the table, right? Um, because you, you're not from the class that that's a given, right? Or you're, you yeah, don't have a job okay. where that's a given, 
or you work three jobs, right, um, and still are not making ends meet, it, you might be at a place where it's like, you know what, they can say whatever they want to say. Like, my family's been hurt for 10 years. And yeah. all the nice words that have been said haven't actually made my family better off, or at least it doesn't feel right. like my family is better off. Right. My, I'm hurt. My family's hurt. Like, <laughs> we got to do something about this, right? And our inability to, to go to that level and try to relate to somebody's experience, to think that the reason they made a decision isn't all the things that we have in our head, why we were opposed to that candidate, candidate but there were these other reasons that drove them to do it. Our, our, our willingness to see them see the other side as ignorant, you know, stupid or hateful, and those are the only two options, is to completely miss everything that that person is about and, and, and to think that we don't, that we would want someone to see us in that very simplistic way of, of these two identities and not see the mosaic that we are is, is to sell us short. And we'd be the first person to stand up and, and say that that didn't represent us, but we're unwilling to kind of extend the benefit of the doubt to, to other folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think I'm with you. When we look at both politics and policy and social change, like it only happens with common ground and okay. where we can start that exchange. If we build up better walls and we're going to keep throwing stuff over those walls because other guys, you know, we see that over and over again. Um, what I wanted to bring up though is, and I think we saw this during the last holiday season, right? With people not able to um, be with their family who voted differently or who wouldn't yeah. back this or who wouldn't wear this shirt or have this in their yard or things like that. Right. It's just like, it, right. I, I just can't, I, I can't talk to my brother who voted for Trump and I'm not even sure. going to show up because I know it's going to come up and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, what do we do about that particular scenario? that those are our teachers and we do have this love of understanding and respect and you're breaking up on I mean, me I think, oh shoot sorry um, I didn't get I, any I, of your response to that oh that's okay um, are we back? Are we good? We're back. Um, let's try just going audio and I'll be conscious of not jumping over you. Oh yeah. No big deal. We can work it through. Yeah. I'm on my, like the good internet here. Um, okay. Get rid of that. There we go. Okay. We have, okay. So I would say that in that, in that context, my, um, you know, the family members, uh, there, there's a, there's a piece of that where there's a shared history, right? So we kind of have this uh, baseline to work from where some of sometimes these folks can be our greatest teachers um, and, and the closest people to us because we have this kind of common shared history. And, and at some point we diverged in, in, in our political viewpoints from our experience, um, but that we have a common history that we can go back to. Are you there? I'm still here. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I just made a weird Skypey noise. Okay. Um, so anyway, so we, we have the shared history that we can deal with. Um, so I think that there's an engagement in that level. Obviously we have to start that conversation. If that's a, we can exist and, and make rules that we're not going to talk about politics. So we're not going to be snarky and we're here to enjoy everybody's company and that's fine. And if everybody can abide to those rules, I think that that's great because there are things, there's so many other things to talk about, right? That always doesn't have to devolve into politics. But if you know that it's going to, 
you know, to set ground rules around a basic level of respect and being able to call out, you know, snarky one-liners or, you know, whatever that might be. But the, the, the reason that we engage in that conversation isn't to prove that we're right or to prove that we're wrong, just to listen. And that is as much on us. And, and if that can be a, a mutual understanding that we just want to hear the other person's side, that, that, you know, this idea of asking, asking one more question, you know, w- you know, you can start with, you know, why, why did you vote that way? But there's always one more question in there, right? That, and it isn't about us having a, a, a vested interest in the outcome of being right, but we're truly engaging to learn more about their perspective. Then I think we can have respectful conversations. Now, sometimes that's not reciprocated and that's kind of something that we deal with going in. And if that's, you know, that's the way it goes and that's, that's the way it goes, but that we can, you know, that we're so, we're so attached to our moral high ground or our rightness in that, that that clouds our ability to be able to genuinely listen without judgment to truly learn more about their perspective. I think that's the way where we can have a better understanding of, of these people that have different opinions than we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and on that note, a lot of times we get into arguing about facts and who said what and sure, history right. and things like that, which um, facts matter. That's true. Um, <laughs> and um, what really is under the surface is how people feel. Right. And so, right. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes asking for people about their opinion and their thoughts, you're going to get one answer, right? Um, if you ask them how they feel about something, you're going to get another answer. And I think that's the subtext that we've sort of, I think, jumped over, Ash, is we are coming from the perspective that these conversations are going to, might be hard and uncomfortable, right? Feelings right. conversations are hard sometimes and uncomfortable sometimes, right? Um, and so that... But I think that's where the work in the conversation is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And so I think that the, you know, and is your, as, as all of this, as we move through being comfortable in these awkward moments and having these hard conversations, you know, I don't think the, you know, ripping the bandaid off mentality is necessarily the best. You go for your like most conservative, most empowered, most, you know, somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum and like, you know, at, whatever, then the next time, next family birthday, you like dig into these conversations. I don't, I don't think that that's the way that we do it, right? That all of this is a process and that we can, we can practice by effectively engaging with people that have slightly different opinions on something that we do, even maybe within our own circles that create a safe space where we can say, Hey, I'm really working on listening without judgment and having more productive conversations. And I feel like there's a couple of things we disagree on. You feel like a safe person I can do this with. Let's try and then how do you sit there and listen to these topics without judgment? How do we sit there and have conversations with folks that aren't on the polar opposite end of the spectrum, but slightly different and actually practice the skill that comes with listening without any attachment to being right or changing their mind or fear that they're going to try to change ours, right? So so again, we can, we can wade into this slowly in and, and take the low-hanging fruit to sp- practice our skill set. So when we do get riled, it's a lot easier to bring ourselves back down because it's about the simplicity of where we should move the water cooler to and not whether or not I have a right to be married to my wife. You know what I mean? Like, how do we engage in a, in a more in a 
simpler level that we're not having these conversations about these issues that are so flashpoint, but but bring a better skill set to having conversations that are awkward when we're not going to maybe get so fired up. Precisely. And, and I think part of the process, I mean, we mentioned having people that are different, like, you know, whether you're on the right side of the spectrum um, and you're having a hard time talking to other people or whether you're on the left side, like sometimes what we think is like, okay, we're on the left, so we need to go talk to the people on the right, right? There mm-hmm. might be people who are more radically on the left than you, Absolutely. Right, that you need to go talk to for several reasons. One is um, because they might need some, you know, need to be heard and listened to as well. But also, I think it can help you remember what it's like to be in a different value set, to be in a different perspective set, and to be caught in someone else's language and echo chamber, mm-hmm. um, and be Absolutely. like, "Oh, this is super. This is super disorienting. I don't know what to do in this space. I want to get involved, and this person is super annoying. If they talk about." You know, if they talk about this vegan burger one more time, I'm going to right. lose it, right? And, right. you know, Absolutely. if they critique me one more time about something, I'm going to lose it. And you're like, oh, that's what it feels like. Okay. Like, right. Absolutely. It was like my mother always used to say, you know, the, the, you drive down the road and the people that drive faster than you are maniacs and the people that drive slower than you are idiots, right? Like that's kind of how we think of when we drive down the road and there's no relativity to that we you know we we sit there and, and, and if we're on the left we think the people that are more radical than us don't have the practicality to actually get ideas done and we think people that are to the you know more centrist than us are are losing perspective of the cause and that they're selling out right mm-hmm. and so we we marginalize people within our own group or we assume that because our perspective exists on the left that everybody you know, everybody under our tent thinks this, thinks the same way we do. So going back to what you said, that we engage with people because it gives us relativity to what's happening and we don't engage with them to, to make them come to our side. We engage with them to broaden our perspective of what it means to define as left or whatever that might be. And, and that there, these good ideas exist everywhere. And if we're only, again, we get we, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower if we're only listening to people that agree with us and only honoring or respecting or celebrating the opinions of people that are like us, then we're not truly respecting diversity. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we, we're there to listen, we're there to learn, but as, as we're saying here, we're there to practice as well, like showing up in a, as an active com- conversant, like, oh, how can I learn about that? Oh, that person, you know, and, and this is where it can sometimes get tricky because, um, Rightly so, we mentioned some of the some of the um, you know Me Too and you know Times Up those types of things, which are fantastic. But we're also at this point to where I think we're so ready to correct what someone said and mm-hmm. tell them how to say it better that we don't right. actually hear what they said. I right. totally agree. That's brilliant. And so you know, it, so it's it's about this practice and being practicing these hard conversations, you know. And and pra- I feel like oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No, I, I was pretty much done. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, along the same lines of what you said, the the important part is, is if we actually want to change the way people think, like, I don't want somebody to not use the word gay in a negative way around me because I told them to. I want them to ch- not use that word because they realize and understand the impact that it has on me when they use the word gay in a disparaging way, Right. All that's going to happen if I tell them not to do it because I said so is they're not going to do it around me. They're not going to actually change change their behavior on a core level. But if I can appre- have them understand and appreciate why I want them to make the change and then put it in their court, 
the the breadth and the sustainability of that change is so much more significant. So as a change maker, I need to be able to engage in a way where people can understand the whys behind what I'm saying, not understand the exact right verbiage of how they need to say it. Yeah, fantastic. You know, I was I was watching some King footage, um, which reminded me um, of many of the brilliant points um, that we sometimes forget. But like, um, and it's it's hard to paraphrase King and and make it sound nearly as as insightful. (laughs) Um, But but the point was, you know, we when we look at things like. you know, all the isms, and we look at the, the thingification of people, and we look at sort of the othering of people, we don't really, well, we sometimes forget that it's not just about the fact that our behaviors and words and actions can hurt them, but mm-hmm. that those behaviors and words and actions at a core level hurt us, right? Because they taint our soul Absolutely. in a certain way. They corrupt who we are and how we see things. And so I think when we get to the point to where we can say, oh, like when I caught, when I use gay in a bad way, that hurts Ash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, that's one level of awareness, right? Um, right. I think there's a deeper level of saying when I use gay in that way, it's hurtful, mm-hmm. and I don't like it's hurtful to do, and it's hurtful to be to receive. So I'm right. just not going to do that because I understand that it is a hurt not for Ash but for everyone. You know. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that. Along those same lines that, that we have, you know, we get so caught up in this, you know, this mentality of being politically correct and not saying the wrong thing. And, and we're so worried that it's going to land wrong because we've, you know, we have this empowered group of folks that are going to tell you how you're saying it wrong. And so that, that we present a threat to anybody trying to delve into these words that we deem right and wrong, that, that then the response to that is just not saying anything. Then just people not engaging in the conversation because they're so afraid they're going to say it wrong that it's best for them. And these are the most well-intentioned people. These are not apathetic people, but better I not say anything than say something wrong. And I feel like that flies in the face of progress because if this is not a testing ground for our closest allies to be able to figure out the right way to talk about stuff and be lovingly corrected and explained to why things are a certain way and why something might be be a- offensive, then then we're not creating this breeding ground for a, a, a more broad understanding of of our cause and, and enabling these um, allies to go out and, and and be educators for other people. It takes me. I mean, just because you brought up Dr. King, my favorite quote is: "In the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but rather the silence of our friends." Mm-hmm. And if we can empower our friends to stand up and have that conversation and have those hard you know, you know, potentially offensive, but well-intended conversations with us and coach them through it. How do we expect them to stand up for us in that same world? Yeah. I mean, we're going to keep getting what we're getting, which is either people, people who think like us, who talk like us, who believe like us, right. Who we're all right. Right. And then all those other people who do not believe like who are at some polar opposite of us who are, wrong and stupid and ignorant and hateful and vile and all those different types of things. And right. it just depends on which shoe you're wearing that day, which, which one you get like, and yeah. all these people in the middle, um, it's, it's always, the middle is always the, not always. I, I, I've been trying to avoid that on today's thing. <laughs> yeah, the middle is that. often the challenge. Um, you know, the middle in the sense of people who are silent, who are not engaged in the conversation, who don't know how to enter the conversation, who, um, have been pushed back out and, uh, you know, don't have the courage to get back in. Like that's where, 
the change happens. And I think one can, if we kind of go back to where we started, right, one could be militant and going after those people who are, you know, the polar opposite of you and put on your armor, you know, grab your swords, go, go fight and yell at folks. Right. Um, that, and that's, I'm not saying that's easy to do. I think a lot of the work and the hard conversations though, are having the conversations with people who want to talk, but don't know how, or who are just silent and, you know they care, but you just don't know why they're not involved. Like that's the axis of these conversations. I, at least I find um, more so than than yelling at people because I mean you're not going to change someone else's mind if they're entrenched in that belief, um, or it's very hard to. Um, but there are a lot of people who are just stuck in the middle. Right. Exactly. And when they're told how they're wrong or how they aren't thinking about it enough, again, how they're either like bigoted or stupid. You know what I mean? Or um, whatever the other end of that is. You know, to you know, not pragmatic enough or um, too liberal. Like whatever, whatever these like labels that we put on people absolutely eviscerates their real experience. And just like you said, then then we're just not, then we're not actually having conversations. We're just continuing to shout at each other. Yeah. Um, and that's fun. Let's keep doing that, please. Um. <laughs> All right. We, we've talked about quite a few things and sort of wrap things up, Ash. Let, let's, let's pull it down into some concrete steps people can take to start having um, some hard conversations. So um, let, let's sort of go with three steps, if you don't mind. Three steps people can take sure. to start having some hard conversations. Absolutely. So I would say the first one is practice. You know, it's like the, the, you know, the first time you jump off a diving board, it's really scary. The second time it's easier, and by the third time you're, you're comfortable, right? That, that we have to practice and that we are practicing in these safe spaces. Um, and so I would say, you know, you gotta, you just gotta get your, you gotta get your hands dirty. I would be, would be the first thing. So one would be practice. Um, two would be accountability. Um, that you have somebody that you know wants to go on this journey with you, who will hold you accountable to, to starting these more challenging conversations. So um, accountability of, of making sure that that, that you're actually engaged in these difficult conversations. And then the last thing that would be um, find one new source that is different than what you usually listen to, whether that's more centrist, whether that's, you know, it's, it's hard to go to the other and the extreme, but again, all of this is in moderation, right? Because it's a continuing process. There's no finish line to getting there. So, you know, find one new source that isn't in your normal realm that you don't get, you know, that doesn't show up in your feed and actually read an, an article a day with somebody that thinks differently than you do just to get a different perspective. And it isn't that sometimes that's not about interaction and, and it's not going to like stoke you in all the ways that a personal conversation will, but it'll give you perspective of what the other side is seeing. So those three things kind of start you on the, the process of in an everyday, tangible, practical way, moving forward in this mastery of having hard conversations. That's fantastic. So as today's guest on the show, you get to leave people with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon whichever resonates with you. So based upon what we've discussed today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? I guess my challenge would be have one hard conversation before the next time you listen to Charlie's podcast. That's fantastic. Ash, it's been um, wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely, Charlie. It's been fantastic. It was a pleasure being here. All righty, listeners. So you heard from Ash. 
Between now and the next time you listen to a podcast, what can you do to have a hard conversation? And if you're on a podcasting streak or you're listening to some, let's make it the next week. Between now and the next week, what can and will you do to have a hard conversation? Remember, it doesn't have to be with the hardest possible um, conversant out there. It could be someone that's just a little different, that's maybe needing to talk about something, maybe needing to be heard, or maybe you're needing to be heard. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.